Welcome to The Smiley Connection, a podcast brought to you by the Smiley Professionals Network and The Smiley. On this show, we'll bring you professionals from all walks of life and across all industries to help you grow professionally and personally. We'll laugh, we'll learn, we'll connect. And who knows, you may find your next Smiley Connection on our show. Hi, and Yali Malad, everybody. It's Sony Gassim here. Today's show is part two of my conversation with Latif Nasser, a science journalist, a co-host of Radiolab, and the host of the Netflix documentary series, Connected. Latif also spent three years reporting on a mini-series through Radiolab, focusing on a Guantanamo Bay detainee who shares his name. If you haven't yet checked out the first part of our conversation, hit pause on this episode and go back to the previous one. In part one, Latif dives into the behind the scenes moments from filming his Netflix series and explains the difference between video storytelling and audio storytelling. He also talks a little bit about his interfaith family and what it's been like to balance parenting with his career. And for those who are here to continue on with Latif's journey, I'll take you back in time this week to Latif's childhood in Canada where he remembers taking all kinds of classes, from engineering to ice skating and even going to circus camp. He also spent some time in boarding school, which he says completely changed his life. He eventually went off to Dartmouth in New Hampshire, and then to Harvard in Boston, where he got a PhD in the history of science. On this episode, you'll hear all about that and more, including how he pivoted into science journalism. He'll also share his advice to those interested in a journalism career and to those who may feel stuck in their jobs but want to do something else. I really hope you enjoy. So you're in LA now, but you were born in Mississauga, Ontario, Canada, and your parents are both from Tanzania and they moved to Canada in the 70s. Can you talk a little bit about your childhood and the family atmosphere you grew up in? So my parents, I think both of them were very different. My mom was a city kid from Dar es Salaam. My dad was a small town kid from Dodoma, Tanzania. And they met in Mississauga at Kane. And basically, one thing that they really had in common is that journey for them from East Africa to Canada was a life-defining journey in East Africa. They didn't get the educational opportunities that they wanted. My dad, he wanted to go to university. He wasn't able to. and He wanted to study engineering. Instead, he went to an agricultural college in Kenya. My mom, her mom died when she was in high school and that kind of completely threw her off. She barely finished high school and ended up having to do like secretarial school and stuff like that. But she's a very smart, woman, both of them, were hungry for education more than the world had allowed them. And then they came to Canada and they were struggling to get by and put food on the table and stuff. But they kind of infected my sister and I with that feeling of like, oh, education. Latif's parents stressed education so much that they borrowed money against their house just to send Latif and his sister Farah to private school. By the way, Farah is also a journalist and is currently a news anchor for Global News in Toronto. They didn't have enough to send both of us to private school, so we would basically like switch years. One year I would be in public school, she would be in private school, and then two years later they'd switch, and then they'd switch again. And we would just keep switching because they wanted us to get a really good education, even though they couldn't afford it. And they signed us up for all these classes, like 
some cultural mistranslation or something. My dad feels like the thing you're supposed to do is sign up your boy for like hockey lessons. I ended up taking years and years of figure skating lessons instead. And it was just this funny thing where I was like the only boy in the class. <laughs> I was like the only brown kid. It just did not belong in this class. But I did it and I like took it so seriously and I didn't get very far. But I was in every class. I was in everything. And I think that really came from my parents being like, trust me, you have the opportunity, just take it. Even if you don't want it or you don't think you want it, just take it and learn this thing and learn that thing and learn that thing. And I think that's really paid off all kinds of dividends. And I think so much of that, so much of the hunger that I have, the insatiable hunger I have to like learn new things is because my parents also wanted to learn new things and they weren't allowed to learn the things mm -hmm. that they wanted to or they couldn't. And then they sort of infected me with that. And I've had the opportunities and I just want more of them, you know? My parents were always like, just go learn everything. I went to like circus camp. Wow. And I also went to engineering camp and this thing and that thing and that thing. And I learned all the things, you know, that you'd have expected like an immigrant kid. Those are the classes that immigrant parents would sign their kids up for to become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or something. But then also all the weird stuff. They were like, yeah, that's important too. Go get that stuff too. Go take music lessons. Go take this, go take that. And for me, I guess I was just going along with it reluctantly, but I was going along with it. And then at some point I was like, oh, this is actually kind of cool. Like I like doing all this stuff. When Leather was 16, he left Mississauga to go to boarding school in British Columbia. He said that experience completely changed his life. The boarding school is Pearson College, which is part of a network of global schools under the United World College. What happened was I had found out through a kid in my county about this other school called Pearson College. The way he described it, it was like this Shangri-La where it was this like beautiful, beautiful spot, literally on the other side of the country on Vancouver Island, like right on the Pacific Ocean. And it's a tiny school, had 200 students about covering the last two years of high school. But those 200 students were from about 100 different countries and they were all there on full scholarship. Oh. So they were like a little United Nations kind of a school, <laughs> all from different classes, from different kinds of backgrounds, cultures, languages, everything. And I desperately applied. I wanted to go so bad and I was an alternate. I didn't get in. And I actually literally went there the summer before I was not supposed to start and I begged them to let me in. And then they finally did because someone dropped out or something. But going to that school really changed everything for me. The academics were really good, but also like the amount you would learn from literally in your room, you would have three roommates who are from three different continents from you, you know? Right. And to have that interaction, to meet people and to see how they're so much like you and how they're also so much different. That just made me like rethink, like, what are my values? What do I care about in the world? And also my ambitions. What kind of thumbprint do I want to put on the world? And not just Mississauga, what kind of difference could I try to make in the world at large? Do you think all these experiences in your past automatically put you on a path to where you are today? It's hard for me to kind of see a path in the sense that at so many times, there's so many decisions you make that feel like left turns. For instance, after university, I went to grad school, which I didn't even know what I was doing or why, or like, it just felt so arbitrary that I was like, I guess I'm going to go here because I can't find a job and I don't know where else to go. In a way, a lot of the individual choices felt like kind of arbitrary and out of my control entirely. But I do think the general path that my parents set me on, this feeling of like, care about other people, the world is an interesting place, go learn about it. You have the ability to make a difference. There are these very simple things, and a lot of them come from, I think, faith. As a parent myself now, like I'm thinking about that a lot because it 
distilling it all down, like what are the things that I don't care where my kids end up or what they do or whatever makes them happy, you know, but like, what are the things that are the transcendentally important, the things that like, no matter what they do, I want them to internalize and live, you know? Mm -hmm. So that informed your decision to study theater at Dartmouth. Yeah, like even that, like it's a very weird decision like that no one I knew would have made or no one I grew up with would have made. But it was just something I liked and it was something I found exciting. Also part of the reason I studied theater, which is more social reason, which is that I didn't and don't drink. And the school I went to, a lot of the social culture was around like fraternities and things like that. And I didn't even know that when I got there. And then I got there and I'm like, oh, why do I have no friends? Oh, it's because I don't drink and everybody's <laughs> at a fraternity. And then I was like, okay, so it's nighttime. What can I do? Oh, okay, I guess I can hang out with the weirdo theater kids who are putting oh, on a smart. puppet show or something. So some of it was, I guess, that. But that was not a decision that I would have foreseen. Yeah, and then that just took me in kind of all these different directions. But the fact that I went home to my parents and I was like, look, I'm going to this fancy Ivy League school to study theater, you know, like they didn't even flinch. They were like, great, good for you. Do your best. For me, that's a gift that I don't even think I realized it was a gift at the time. It was an immense gift. Eventually, Lethef went to Harvard to get a PhD in the history of science. History of science was one of those things where it was 2008. I graduated. There was an economic crisis. I was like, there's no way I'm getting a job. I wanted to be a playwright. I applied to some playwriting graduate schools. I did not get in. So I was like, what am I going to do? I have no idea what to do. And a professor who I'd been a research assistant for as an undergrad, he was like, you'd be great. You should do the program that I did at Harvard. And I was like, what is this? And he said, it's the history of science. And I was like, I barely knew that that was a field. And I remember I applied and I went to the interview and I'll never forget that interview where I walked in, I was so intimidated, it's Harvard professor. And he goes, okay, so you wanna be in this history of science PhD program, do you have a background in history? And I was like, no, no, not really, no. And he said, do you have a background in science? And I said, no, no, not really, no. And he said, like, we have two language prerequisites. Do you speak French? And then I said, very poorly, very poorly. And he said, do you speak German? And I said, no, not at all, not at all, no German. And he was like, okay, thank you. <laughs> and then that was the whole interview. <laughs> How'd you feel after that? Like, I was like, crushed. I was like, what am I even doing with my life? Like, why did I even think that I could do this? But I think I, theoretically, I guess I made a much better case in my written application and my professor sort of vouched for me too. But it was a thing where I didn't really know about the field. I was interested in it, but I didn't really know about it and I didn't know what else to do. And so then I applied to that program and kind of once I got there, I really fell in love with it. I was like, oh, this field, like science has a history? Oh, of course it does. And like, oh, that's so interesting to learn how we know what we know. It's kind of a meta level. It's science, but it's like there are stories here, which as a theater kid, like I get stories. I understand that. And science, like I love science. I've never been really good at it. But if you make it a story, like all of a sudden now I can get it. So I locked into that field and I just really fell in love with it. One of the things I want to ask, I'm not exactly sure how to ask it, but yeah. I know for a lot of young people, they want to know, like obviously life isn't perfect. And mm -hmm. these people who go off and have successful jobs or successful careers or from the yeah. outside, what looks like success, they don't realize just how many challenges or how much sometimes there might be self-doubt or sometimes yeah. there are these walls that you hit. Yeah. And how do you get through it? How do you get yourself out of that? And 
make the next step to really take your life back into control. Yeah, it is terrifying. And especially right now, I can imagine a whole generation or more of young people who like, maybe they had an idea of what they wanted to do. Maybe they didn't, but maybe they did. And now it doesn't make any sense anymore. Whether it's wanting to go to university or college and now it's like, should I defer? Should I even do that? Like, is it worth it? Whether it's people who are like trying to get a job and does that job even exist anymore? You know, whatever. But my dad says this thing. It's maybe cheesy and maybe you've heard it before, but it's this thing. You kind of are making this Venn diagram of like, okay, what is it that I love? What is it that I'm good at? And what is it that the world needs? Those are the three circles. And what's in the middle of those things? Something that you love, something that you're good at, something that the world needs. That's the thing. And to me also, the feeling is like, it takes a lot of the pressure off to say, this isn't what I'm going to be for the rest of my life. Like, that's okay. It's okay to try new things. It's okay to try something and fail. That's so fine. Like the step in front of you, that's not the only step. And it's not even necessarily the decisive step. And if you take that pressure away from it, it's okay. And I think finding people around you to be supportive of that and supportive of also journalism, this field, I don't know if you've learned it. I've certainly found that this is a field where you learn things out loud the hard way. You make mistakes out loud and it's really hard. And to me, the game is just being okay, being willing to learn new lessons and hard lessons and embarrassing lessons sometimes even. And just keep refreshing your own self and being like, is this what I want to do? Is this what I love? Is this what I'm good at? Is this what the world I think needs of me? And if you keep asking yourself that question all along, it takes some of the pressure off at the beginning to be like, oh, I need to make this decision and this is going to be my career path and this is going to be my job for 20 years and da 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 da. It's like, it's okay. Take that pressure off. Don't worry. But I really feel for so many of these kids who are out there right now because things are even more chaotic and confusing than they ever were for mm -hmm. me at that same stage. While Latif was getting his PhD at Harvard, he started freelancing to Radiolab and the Boston Globe, among other publications. I would have these cool ideas and I would be like, no one's talking about this, but this is really interesting. And that was my way in. And I didn't have any journalism training. I didn't have any background in it really at all. But I was like, I know this is interesting and I love this story and I want to be able to tell it to the world, but I don't know much more than that. And so what do I do now? And I kind of learned journalism doing it, being a freelance journalist, writing stories, reporting stories. And then I finally got hired right after I finished grad school at Radiolab. Among other things, my job was kind of being in charge of fact checking. And I was super stressful. And I worked at it and then was a reporter for a long time. And starting last year, I'm one of the co-hosts. Yeah, which is awesome. So congrats on that. Thank you. So the next question that I had, a lot of times when you're early career professionals, mm -hmm. you start your first job and it might not be a job that you fully love. Yeah. And so if they're in a job, there's a lot of people that I've encountered that are sort of like, you know, I got this internship at this company because big name, you know, big money, yep. whatever. Yep. I have yep. to do it. Totally. And then they get kind of stuck into that cycle, right? Yeah. But then they ask themselves, like, am I really enjoying this? It's a stable job. It's right. it's like a nice recognizable job. I might not yeah. like the position I have, but do I keep sticking with it for another three yeah. years until I can finally... Yeah be someone within this company. Yeah. How do you make that decision? I mean, do you have any advice for young professionals or even like mid-career yeah. professionals that yeah. want to switch out to something else? Yeah, it's a hard thing, especially now, because it's like, there's so many variables there too. 
this kind of conversation, it's really different if you're talking to someone who's from a family who's really well off and who can comfortably sit out for a little while and think about what they actually want to do or try something new or start a business or start their own. Like that's a different story, whether you need money and you need to survive. And this is a really hard time to interview for a new job for 10 different reasons. So yes, there's a lot of variables there. In my experience, and I should be clear myself, like when I was a grad student and when I was a freelancer, there were multiple times in there where my wife, my now wife, who is my girlfriend, was carrying me. Like she paid the rent, you know, and I was just happened to be there and lucky to have someone like that. Not everybody is so lucky. Was this during the PhD phase? Yeah, this was like right after my PhD when I was a freelance journalist for a little while before I went to Radiolab. It's also, there were certain times as a PhD student where, you know, usually you make money as a grad student by teaching, but teaching takes up a lot of time or writing grant proposals or whatever. And I didn't want to do that because... I just didn't want to spend all my time doing all this other stuff. But then I was basically broke all the time. And then my wife carried me, basically. That said, I think in the long term, the thing that is most important is your time. The thing you should value most is your own time and your own kind of thought, energy, and your love and your effort. And to me, if you're putting that stuff, especially if you're in the prime of your life, right? And I know now I can say, if you don't have a family, you don't have kids, you don't have all these like responsibilities that take up a lot of your time and effort later on, which maybe you want them or not. But like you're in this prime of your life and you have this time and effort and love and energy and enthusiasm if you don't think that you're learning something, you're getting something out of it, you're doing something for the world that you feel good about, that you can sleep at night feeling like you're actually doing something that's net positive. If you have sort of reservations about what you're doing and how you're spending your time and your effort and your love and energy and thought, if you are going to bed and you feel like you regret the day, that's not the place you want to be. And whether it's hustling on evenings and weekends to find something else, and that's not easy. It's so not easy. It's really, really hard. But if it means doing that, I think that you owe it to yourself to do that, to find that thing, because no one else is going to help you. And inertia is so powerful. There's so many people I went to university with who I look at, I remember thinking like, you're going to, wow, this person, I'm going to say I knew them when, and wow, this person's like going to be on the time 100 most influential people list, you know? And they're just stuck in these jobs that they kind of hate. Inertia is a force that is hard to resist. And it's on you. Nobody else is going to come and rescue you. You got to rescue yourself and you got to figure out what is the thing. For me, that thing is storytelling. That thing is science. That thing is like the ways that we're all connected to one another. Even if it means I'm learning about that and, and trying to do it, which I spent a long time before I made anything, just like learning stuff and reading stuff and listening to stuff. And that was okay. Like I didn't need to immediately be the best at everything or immediately even be saying anything. It took a long time while I was in grad school and doing other things where it was confusing and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew, okay, I like this. Like, let me just hold on to that. And then what am I going to do next? I don't really know, but at least I know this. That was so well said. Thank you. So how is someone who is interested in going into journalism, who's either 
study journalism in undergrad but doesn't really know exactly how to get their foot in the door or maybe there's someone who didn't study journalism how can they get started in journalism or podcasting now i mean there's a lot of different ways it's never too late to go to a journalism school or take a journalism class or do an internship the way i started was find some things that you think are interesting that nobody is talking about that nobody is writing about and it maybe it's something close to home or maybe it's something you heard from a friend of a friend or maybe it's something you were at the dentist and you like heard the dentist talking about and you're like huh that's really interesting and how come nobody's talking about that whatever it is or the thing that you spend a disproportionate amount of your time at night like reading about on reddit or whatever just if there's something that you feel like you're like huh this is really interesting and nobody's talking about this pitch it, go find outlets that you love and be like, hey, I want to do a story about this. If you want to start pitching the New York Times or wherever, that's fine. You could do it. But like probably start at maybe a more local place or a smaller website or something like that that you do actually like or read or admire and think that they're actually might be an editor there who could teach you something and just pitch some stories. And I think it's like write a bunch of stuff and try it and see what it feels like. And it's hard. And you'll be like, oh, this is harder than I thought it was. And I'm actually bad at it. And that's okay. And push through that and just try it and do reps over and over and over and over and over again. And also find work that you love. Look at journalists you admire, whether they're magazine or book or podcast or whatever, and just dissect their stuff and reverse engineer it. How did they do it? How did they find this story? How did they put it together? Why did they talk to this person? Who else did they talk to? Who else did they not talk to? Just kind of try to shred this thing apart and see what's there. Are there any other overall takeaways that you want listeners to take from this conversation? I think the world is like this wonderfully exciting place where like we get this time and like it's like we get this blank check of time, you know? and you kind of get to do with it whatever you want. The point is it's on you, it's on us to like entertain ourselves and learn about the world, but also to like, it's so cheesy, to make the world a better place. Like I do think, and I mean, maybe it's naive, but I do think journalism is really important. And I'm so happy to be someone who does this job because I think it has a lot of power and has a lot of potential. And I wake up every morning like excited to do my job because I think that it's fun and also because I think it's important. And I think it's like for everybody, like finding a thing that can hit those two, that can check off those two boxes. Like that's not too much to ask. Last question. Yeah. What's next for you professionally and or personally? I don't even know, to be honest. It's funny, like starting this year, I'm trying to figure out what I'm doing. Still making Radio Lab, and I have a whole bunch of stories that I'm working on for that. The TV show is kind of on pause for the moment with the pandemic, and maybe it'll keep going. I, I don't know, Netflix or somewhere else, whatever. I have a whole bunch of new projects that are kind of secret that I can't talk about, but I'm really excited. <laughs> like, I have stuff. To me, it's like I'm kind of a restless person. Well, thank you so much. Tony, it was great to talk to you. Let's talk again another time. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Somatic Connection. If you're interested in learning more about Lethop's work, you can check out a few resources and links to past projects in the show notes. And if you liked the show, help us out by hitting the subscribe button, writing the show, and leaving a review. More so, if you didn't like the show, tell us how we can improve. We'd really appreciate your support and feedback. As always, you can chat with us at IPN Podcast at ipnonline.net. 
This episode was produced by me and edited by the talented Castle Our cover art is designed by Nadia Khan and Shaquille Momad. Marketing for this episode was carried out by Samin Jawani. Also, many thanks to Zoha Momin for her unwavering support and guidance and Farhan Manjiani for all his helpful suggestions and charm in securing speakers. Music included in this episode are Light Day Drum and Bass by Tim Moore, Inspiring Motivate Piano and Strings by Tim Moore, Awakening Instrumental Soundcloud by Waterboy, Nine Inch Heaven by Tim Moore, Through Expectation by Tim Moore, and Cali by Waterboy. Thank you so much to those who believed in this Maya connection from the beginning and to those who continue to support it. We're incredibly grateful. <laughs>